Friends, we're going to turn back to the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles or a, uh, or a phone that you have your Bible on or uh, however you're going to read this morning, I encourage you to have it in front of you. Read along with me in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. The words will also be on the screen behind me. Last week we, we looked at the entirety, the whole of chapter 7 of Hebrews, which is a chapter about Melchizedek, uh, but really it's a chapter about, about Jesus. It's famous for uh, having a bunch in there about this figure, Melchizedek, in the Old Testament, but the, but the point of why the author brings up this obscure character in history is to point us to Jesus Christ, to point us to the one who is the better priest, the more effective priest, the one who can get the job done on our behalf. He's, he is better than anything else that we could go to, the author tells us. He is effective in forgiving our sins. He's effective in bringing us back into relationship with God. And the author tells us, as, as we come to this passage this morning, uh, it's not often that the Bible does this, but the author tells us this morning that he's coming to his main point. He says this in, in, in verse 1, he says, now the main point in what we are saying is this, and we'll read the passage in just a moment, but, but we don't often get these indicators that here's the main point. Here's the main point of what I've been getting at. So we better pay attention <laughs> to this chapter this morning. And as, as we look at this chapter, what I want you to see is that the author's going to use this idea that's been in, in Scripture from the very beginning, this idea of a covenant that God is making with his people. He's going to use that to show us what Jesus has done for us and what he can do for you and what he will continue to do for you if you're in relationship with him. So as we come to the passage, let's, let's pray and we'll read it together, spend a few moments reflecting on it. Lord God, we come to your word knowing how much we need you. Lord, we... We confess our frailty. We confess our weakness. I, I feel my own weakness this morning uh, in keen ways as I come to this text and as I come to deliver this message. And, and Lord, uh, uh, I need you desperately and we all do. We need you to help us. We need you to help us to take these words on, on, on paper that have been copied and, 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 and written down uh, for centuries as, as, as they've been preserved, uh, that were originally written to this group of believers in a situation where they face persecution, and now they're handed down to us. And Lord, we believe that these are, these are your words, your words to, to people that need them. And, and Lord, help us to recognize that we are people who need them. And help us to be changed by these words. Help us to be shaped by the word that you've given us. This idea of the, the new covenant that you have brought us into. A new relationship with you. And help us to go out from here. Not, not just the same as we came in. But molded a little bit more to be like Jesus Christ. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Friends, let's read Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, this one's just 13 verses, not, not 28 like last week. Uh, so we'll read the whole chapter and then we'll spend a few minutes uh, in it. 
Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here the author quotes uh, what Silas just read for us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. The author tells us this morning, this is the main point of what he's been saying. What is the main point? Here it is. After all this talk about the, the, the person of Christ who is better, he's better than anything else you could go to. This is what the author says is the main point. He says, we have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. I think the author intentionally chooses this wording because we could look at all of chapter 7 and we could see the person of Jesus. We could see all these things that, that, are, that are true of him, or at least the author says that they're true. He says that, that he's a better, more effective uh, 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 priest before God, one who can, who can establish a relationship with God. He's, he's, he's what the, uh, the old priest simply pointed to. The old priests were ineffective in doing their work to try and forgive sins. They pointed to the one, the only one who could forgive sins. We could see that there is possibly someone who could fill that role. But this is what the author says is the main point, that we have such a high priest. It's not just that one exists. Not just this is, this is who Jesus is. But you and I have been granted by God to come into relationship with this better one. With this one who's better than, than, than anything else that this world provides. This one who is effective in the ways that all of the other things that we go to for meaning and purpose in life are insufficient. That we have such 
a high priest. Then the altar tells us a little bit about what Jesus is doing for you and for me. If you know Jesus Christ, if you are in relationship with Jesus Christ, these things are not just abstract truths for you. These are personal truths. These are truths that have transformed your life. They've gone deep in and they are changing you and they will continue to change you and shape you. Because when Christ enters in as a high priest, when you have such a high priest, then he is doing a work on your behalf. And the author begins by, he describes where Jesus is and what he's doing, which, which are going to be very important. He describes where he is and what he's doing. I want you to notice first how the author tells us about where Jesus is. And this is, this is key. He says he's a minister, verse 2, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, that the Lord set up, not man. What does the author mean by this? Every priest that he's described in chapter 7, every priest that the Old Testament describes, they served in a, in a, in a space that God specifically set apart in order for the people to be able to, to come with the priest as their representative and, and for the priest to offer sacrifices and, and, and they could be in relationship with God, that God could dwell among his people. And this specific place was called the tabernacle and the temple at various points. What the author of Hebrews is telling us here is that we have a priest who serves in the true tent. The true tent. What does that mean? Wasn't there, wasn't there a real actual tent, a real actual temple? Well, we know there was a real tent, a real temple in old Israel, uh, and, and that temple was, was destroyed. We have even archaeological evidence of these things, but it's throughout the history written by the, the writers of Scripture that there was a tent that the people went to. But, but the author says here there's a true tent. There's a truer tent. And what does the author say that this true tent is? Where is Jesus? Where has Jesus found this true tent, this true place where he can offer sacrifices, one that makes those other tents, those other holy spaces look uh, insufficient or unreal in some sense? Well, the author tells us that that true tent is actually in the heavens. That here is, here's the key of what Jesus has done on your behalf, in my behalf. Every other human being could go into an earthly tent that was set up and offer sacrifices on your behalf. Every other human being could go in and, and do as God commanded to go and to repeat these formal actions, these, these rituals that God had said are, are necessary in order to come into relationship with him. Every other human being could do that, but Jesus, Jesus doesn't do that. If you notice, when Jesus was on earth, he never actually goes into the Holy of Holies. We're going to hear about this a little bit next week with, the, with, with what the author describes in chapter 9. But Jesus never actually goes into the Holy of Holies. Have you ever thought about that? He goes into the temple. He, he, he flips over tables. He, uh, he, uh, he talks to people in the temple. He has conversations. But he never actually goes into the central part of the temple, which was the most important part, which is a bit odd. Because if you read the Gospels, what you come to understand is that Jesus is the only person who actually has a right to be there in light of who he is. He's the only person that actually has a right to go into the Holy of Holies. Not because of an office that he holds, but because of who he is. He's the Son of God. 
But Jesus never does that. Michael Kruger brought my attention to this. Uh, Jesus never goes into the Holy of Holies. Why not? It's because, friends, he didn't need to. He didn't need to go to those things that the author of Hebrews here calls copies and shadows. He didn't need to go to those Old Testament rituals that were meant to point us forward to something different. Because he goes into the actual throne room of God. Where Jesus does his priestly work. Where Jesus does the the work on your behalf that provides forgiveness of sins. It's not happening in some ritual place. It's happening in the actual throne room. It's happening in the actual true tent. In God's presence. Jesus has brought the sacrifice to God himself. No human could do that. No other ritual could accomplish that. God had to accomplish that himself. He sent his very son in order to to accomplish this and then to go and present it in the true tent, the true place where God resides. And the author makes an interesting argument here to show us how this, how this works. He, he's, he's been telling us about how the Old Testament priests point us forward to Jesus. So they, they, they have this function. As we read our Old Testaments, we're reading and we see the ways that, the, or, or we're meant to see the ways that, that, that these Old Testament figures point us forward to something better that's coming. That's what the Old Testament is designed to do, and many of the New Testament authors pick up on this. It's meant to show us our need for God and to point us to to the person who will come and and provide ultimate salvation. But what the author says here is it's not, it doesn't just work that way, where where the Old Testament is like a shadow of the things to come. It's not just that the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, it's that the Old Testament is actually representative of some true realities that are in heaven in the first place. Notice how the author does this. He says uh, in verses 4 and 5, he says, Now, if he were on earth, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And then, and then pay special attention here to verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. What he's saying here, and, 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 then, and then he builds on it by saying that Moses was given instructions by God to to make sure that he made it exactly as God told him to. Why was it so important that Moses made it exactly as God told him to, the tabernacle and the temple? It's because the tabernacle and the temple were actually shadows of of the ultimate reality that existed in heaven. That what, what these things on earth, these rituals on earth that God gave to his people in his law were meant to be, were, were to be reflections of what the true reality of God's presence was like. So, so we have a system of, of priests and of holy places and of sacrifices that had to be made that are all showing us our need for God that are, that are a reflection. They're meant to, to be a reflection of who God is and in, in, in what he is doing from eternity, but they also point us forward to someone who's coming, who's going to bring us back into relationship with our God. So as we read the Old Testament, this is part of what we, we begin to see. As we begin to see, as we, as, as, we, as we look at the temple, for example, as God's presence on earth, we get an idea of what the heavenly temple is like. We get an idea of what, what 
we need in order to become, in order to come to a holy God when we see the priests working. We get an idea of, of how heinous our sin is, of how corrupt we are, of how much we need sacrifice and forgiveness when we see the sacrifices brought in the early temple. These are all things that are, in some sense, the author tells us, projections of, of the heavenly realities. Projections of who God is and has been for all eternity. Now, why is this important for us? Why do we need to hear this message? Why do we need to hear about how the Old Testament points to what's true in heaven and points us to Jesus? Well, I want to mention just a couple of reasons I think it's important that the author, that the author brings this before us. First, it draws us into the story of the Bible and how God is, has worked throughout history. When, when we begin to see the ways that, this, uh, that, that the author shows us how, how we can read the Old Testament and read the entirety of Scripture, we begin to be drawn into an actual story. This isn't just a set of, of worldview points or, or, or philosophical points that we believe or, or claim to hold. Uh, it, it isn't just uh, that we go out and we, we trumpet our views over against views of, of other worldviews or other people out there. We're actually drawn into a story. We're actually drawn into a story of God's grace. That's what, what happens when we, when we are given this grace by God. And the Old Testament showed us our great need and played an extremely important function in this way. But, but, but we, need to, we need to recognize that need. We need to see the glory of the story that God has accomplished what we needed through Jesus Christ. And the best analogy I've heard for this uh, of how the Old Testament and New Testament relate in this way is, is again, from Michael Kruger. He, he uses this analogy of the blueprints of a house. If you're getting a house built, then, then, then you may hire a, a, an architect, and an architect draws up uh, a blueprints for that house. And, and as you look at the blueprints, you begin to see uh, what the house is going to look like, and, and you, may get to, you may begin to get excited about that. Uh, you, you see the rooms as they, as they take shape, but, but you can't live in that house yet until it's built. You can't, you can't live in a set of blueprints. The house actually doesn't do anything, or the blueprints don't do anything for you until the builders build the house. And, and what the author is showing us here is, is that the Old Testament is in a sense like blueprints. These blueprints that actually do really correspond to the house. It's not something that, that works against the house. The Old Testament doesn't work against the New Testament. It's not a God is angry in the Old Testament and he's gracious in the New Testament. It's that these realities in the Old Testament pointed us forward to something better, something we could actually live in. When we, when we move into a house that's been built, it would be absurd for us to say that we would want to go back and live in the blueprints. But what the author's telling us is when we begin to go back to some of, of these themes that, that we tend to go back to, like seeking to work out our salvation for ourselves before God, to earn something before him, or when we go back to, to, desiring, to desiring physical, putting our trust in physical things that we can see rather than Jesus Christ, the author is telling us it's like going back from living in a house to trying to live in blueprints. It doesn't work. 
not effective. The Old Testament plays an important part. It, it, it shows us our need. It shows us what, what that house, so to speak, is, is supposed to look like. But in Jesus, we have the house. When we see Jesus, when we come into relationship with Jesus, there's no need to go back to those other things. And this is the second th- reason I think that, that the author brings this to our attention. The second reason this is so important for us, and we need to hear this, is that we have such a strong inclination to revert back to things we can see and touch, to trust in those things. We have such a, a strong inclination to do that because it's part of our human tendency. We want things that, 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 we, that we can find satisfaction in, that, that, that actually engage our, our senses in what God has, has promised us is a promise of a new heavens and a new earth. But it's only through faith in Christ that we can attain that. It's only through coming to this person, Jesus Christ. And we have such a, such a desire to go back to those things we can see and touch. And what the author says is, why would you go back? Why would you go back when you have what's better already? Don't go back to those other things for satisfaction. Don't go back to the, to the things that, that, that are in front of you that, that, that threaten to take your attention and ultimately your worship. But, but we don't just have a tendency as human beings to go back to, to things that we can see and touch. We have a tendency and, and a drive really to, to place our hope in systems that we can control and manipulate. And this is another element here. We, it's so hard for us to, to trust in something that is freely given. There's something in our human nature that, that revolts at that, that wants to go back to something that I can control through my own behavior. It wants to go back to something that, that I, 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 can, I can find some sort of way to, to manufacture a relationship with God or whoever I call God, <laughs> desire God to be whoever I want to have the ultimate place in my life. We have this tendency to go back to things that we can control. And that was the, the Old Testament system in some sense. It, it, it gave an opportunity for them to perform the rituals well. They could do well in following the instructions that God gave. And what the author of Hebrews tells us is that, that you could perform everything well, everything perfectly. You could control every little bit down to the T, and it's insufficient. It's not effective. It doesn't help you. You have a better hope. You have a hope that's freely offered. In order to take hold of that hope, you have to give up your desire to control and manipulate. To give up your ability to... to, to to follow all those outcomes. It's not that obedience isn't important. We'll talk about that in just a second. But your obedience cannot earn you anything before God. You have been given something better. And what's more, you've been given it freely. And every single one of us this morning is, is offered this person, not a, not a religion, not a, not a system of, of, of going and performing rituals, but but a person, a person who has come and accomplished these things for you. A person who has gone into the true tent, who has actually gone into heaven itself and is still in heaven itself 
and is before the throne of God. You have faith in Jesus. That is the only thing that can bring ultimate effectiveness, satisfaction, fulfillment. And what the author tells us as he, as he works this out in verse 6, and, and this is really the turning point in the passage, he says, but as it is, and really that, that could be translated, but now, but now, you were trying to manipulate things. You were trying to control things. You were trying to, to go to all these other things for salvation. You were trying to, to figure out your own way. But now, but now something different has happened. But now Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. And here's what the, what the author tells us uh, that Christ has done. He says that he's brought about a new covenant. What on earth is a covenant? A covenant is a, is a relationship. It's just an agreement between two people. When two people get married, they promise. They make promises to one another. And they, and they vow to keep a covenant, a relationship. And because of that relationship, there are, there are particular things that happen in marriage. Trust that is built in certain ways because they have made a covenant. They made promises together. And God chooses to enter into covenants with his people, but his people break that covenant over and over and over and over again. And this is another part of the story of the Old Testament, that God has established a relationship, and every single time it's been broken. Every single time, people have gone away from it. God has kept his end of the bargain, but the people did not continue with it. And this is the problem with it. The the, the author tells us, he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless. In other words, there's, there's a fault with that old covenant, and, and he finds fault with it, uh, it, it, really in the fact that the people have broken it. The people did not keep it. But more so, the, the, the old covenant, with all of its rituals, was never meant to be the full accomplishment of what we needed. It was always meant to point us forward. And the promise of this, this new covenant, the promise in Jeremiah that, that Silas read earlier of God telling us that he's going to bring a new covenant, this shows us the kind of God that God is. <laughs> he has every right to reject us. He has every right to leave you to your own solutions. And we continue to feel okay about creating our, our own solutions. We continue to feel okay about trying to live life without him. And he has every right to just leave us to that. But what does he do? He comes after us. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant that is unbreakable. Even though you have broken the covenant every single time, I'm coming after you to make a covenant that will not break, that cannot be broken. Our God is the kind of God who even when we run away, he chases us down. And even when we could not keep up our end of the bargain, and we cannot, and we will not. He will. And he gives us this new covenant promise, and, and, and here's what he says in this new covenant promise. He says, just very quickly, just three beautiful truths here that he says. He says, first, that it's an internal, it's internal, it's not just external. That all the external, all the behavior transformation, behavior modification you could do, 
uh, it, it might do something for your psychology. It might help you in some ways. But this is a covenant that will change you from the inside out. This is something that will, that will, that will get down into your soul and transform who you are. It's internal, not external. See how he says, it's not like the, the covenant I made with their fathers. Uh, and then in verse 10, uh, the, for this covenant that I will make with them, after those days, I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God will transform us from the inside out. It's, it's internal, not just external, but it's also, it's about an intimate relationship with God. And this is what God wants with his people. He wants to actually have an intimate relationship with you. And this is what is offered in the gospel. It's an intimate relationship with the living God. Not just a set of ideas. We are a lonely, a lonely people. And America is more and more that way. And what God tells us is he wants to enter into relationship with us. Are we, are we willing to put our faith in a God who offers this relationship to us despite our failings, not because of anything that we've done? He says, I will be their God, they will be my people, and they, they don't even need teachers anymore. They won't even need preachers. They won't need any, because, because they will all know me. They will all know me. And then finally, he says that he, he provides full forgiveness. It's full forgiveness. It's final forgiveness. And this is what is offered to you and I today. And we, we struggle with this. We struggle to forgive. And we have all been in situations, I imagine, where someone has not forgiven us, where they've held a grudge against us. When we think about the sins that other people have committed against us, it is, it is difficult to forgive those things. And, and what, what God promises here for you and for me is a is a full and final forgiveness. That every single thing that you have done, every single wrong that you have committed, every single sin, God will not hold any of that against you. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come. He's paid for those things already. You don't need to keep trying to pay off those debts. This is what the new covenant gives you. This is what this new relationship gives you. is an intimate relationship with God himself, but also one where you are fully forgiven. Something you will never, never know fully in any relationship in this life because we are all imperfect forgivers. But you will know in your relationship with God himself, the only one who can provide full forgiveness. When Jesus sat down in the last supper with his disciples, and, and he sat with them at a meal, what he appealed to what he, and what, what we come back to week in and week out as we come to the Lord's table is this idea that, that Jesus has brought about this new covenant. So when he sat with his disciples and he broke bread with them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He invited them back to this intimate relationship, a relationship that had been broken, but as his body was broken, we were invited back into that relationship with, with God himself. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. 
Notice he uses that same exact language. He says, this is the new covenant. This is where it's happening. You have relationship now. You have this internal transformation now. You have forgiveness now. 